Do you think you may have a problem with your alcohol consumption or drug use? Are you thinking about quitting and want to know what all the sober hype is about? Are you in recovery and chose to tune in for some inspiration? Whatever the reason, I'm so grateful you are here with me today. My name is Sarah, and I am the creator and host of this podcast. I spent most of my life drinking, and eventually I realized how alcohol was negatively impacting my life in many ways. One day at the age of 39, I decided I was sick and tired of feeling sick and tired, and I reached out for help. I have been sober since 2012, and it has changed my life in ways I never imagined. I am so happy that I got the chance to live a more comfortable life, free of the chains of addiction. Today, my life just keeps getting better. Sober Gratitudes was born out of the desire to recover out loud so that others could see the hope in sobriety. In each episode, I speak with a recovered alcoholic or addict who shares how their life changed for the better after they got sober. I welcome you to subscribe to my podcast to hear these amazing stories of people from all walks of life. They too want to share in this mission to help others and to end stigmas of addiction. I promise you, you will be inspired. Whether you have been here before or you were a first-time listener, I would be so grateful if you would take a minute to write a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to this show so that it can reach more people who may be struggling. You can also reach me at sobergratitudes at gmail.com with any questions or comments. I look forward to hearing from you. Thank you again for dropping in today and welcome to Sober Gratitudes. I said, I tried a meeting and she said, well, try a speaker meeting. And I thought, okay, I didn't even know there were speaker meetings. So I went to a speaker meeting and the guy speaking that nooner, uh, he said something that really stood out to me. And I don't know, I went and thanked him afterwards. And he said, the moment I stopped asking why I'm an alcoholic, I could start moving forward and heal. And I thought that was my pursuit. The insanity was why, why, why? Welcome to Sober Gratitudes, episode 23. My name is Sarah, and I'm so happy you joined me today for a really important episode with Dr. Victoria Burns. Victoria got sober in 2013 and is a fierce advocate for ending stigmas around addiction, mental health, and trauma. I see her as a trailblazer in her profession. Dr. Burns is courageously transparent about her own experiences in a field that says, be quiet. She chose to speak her truth. Her story is an important one to hear. She is loaded with a wealth of information. So please sit back and soak it all up with Dr. Victoria Burns. Hi, Victoria. Hi, Sarah. How are you? I'm good. How are you doing? Good. I'm so glad to have you on my podcast. I, I think we're going to be talking about some great stuff, and I'm excited to hear your story. Um, so why don't we just get right into it and um, talk to us about how you made it to day one. What was life like for you? So my sobriety date is... November 23rd, 2013. So I'm coming up on seven years. 
and I currently live in Western Canada, out in, in Calgary, Alberta, and I've been here for about three years now uh, with my husband, and I mentioned my dog, Pino, so as in the wine, Pino, and named him before I got sober. He just turned nine last month, and I apologized if you hear something. He's kind of doing some Zoomy activity on the couch right now. So. That's okay. <laughs> um, but yeah, so what it was like... Um, I grew up actually on the east coast of Canada in New Brunswick, and I think I knew the word alcoholic probably earlier than most kids did. Um, I had alcoholism or have alcoholism on both sides of my family. So my maternal grandfather, we were estranged from him growing up because he was, um, you know, he, him and him and my mother had a falling out and you know, as alcohol tends to, to do in families. And um, my father drank as well. And on his side of the family, there was a lot of alcoholism. So I heard stories of um, great uncles who died in their 40s from liver failure, from alcoholism. So I definitely had that genetic predisposition. Um, I don't recall the first time I ever drank alcohol, but I remember being a kid and my father giving me sips of his beer and feeling special when I had those sips of beer. And I think I felt special because I was the middle child and I was kind of the quiet one. So my sisters were very much like my mother. Um, she had a wicked temper could go from zero to a hundred on a dime. And there were a lot of physical altercations in our house. So, um, you know, coffee, coffee tables, flying, that kind of thing. Oh, wow. Okay. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. some physical violence and, and also uh, emotional abuse. Yeah. Which is, which is very typical for, for people who struggle with addiction. Right. So, yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. So that was kind of the landscape growing up. And I, I never felt safe, I can definitely say that. And I was coined a quote, unquote, neurotic worry wart by my mother. That was, that was a uh, what she referred to me often, because I was even a five, six year old, I would be up in the middle of the night worried about things worried about getting cancer, worried about, you know, all, all things that a five or six year old shouldn't be worrying about. And I think that was just my way of, of coping in some way or trying to control, um, which didn't work, obviously, but that was kind of what I what I did. And yeah, so, so I remember kind of feeling some sort of connection, I think, with my dad when he would give me some sips of his beer and feeling like it was kind of bad at the same time. So there was some kind of like excitement around it. Yeah. And then I didn't drink again. I wasn't actually a big drinker in junior high or high school, which um, I guess maybe I had a bit of a late start. I, I dabbled, but I was very much interested uh in boys and I had my first relationship from 13 to 16 
and then 16 to 18. And my relationship 16 to 18 was with a guy two years older than me who was pre-med and, and very serious and um, didn't drink and, you know, waiting for marriage to have sex, all that kind of thing. And so I followed suit and wasn't a partier. I was always a bit of a nerd. And I think that was my saving grace actually growing up is that I felt very safe when I was at school and I thrived. I was always an A student. I wanted to be the teacher's pet. I did everything. I was, you know, my report cards consistently said, Victoria is the model student, very conscientious. Um, so yeah, that was, that was kind of my MO. I, I enjoyed school and I excelled at school. And I think those gold stars became my first, well, maybe my second drug of choice because a big part of my story is also uh, eating disorder, like a lot of women, right? And um, yeah. a lot of people, I should say. And I actually wanted to preface this interview with a trigger warning that I am going to be mentioning trauma, which is a little bit later. Sure. I got a little bit thrown off with her, my um, phone falling on the ground. But <laughs> I just <laughs> want to make sure that, you know, people are aware. But it is, it's such an important part of the conversation as well and I think not discussed enough so so yeah fast forward till I was 18 and I couldn't wait to get out of Dodge and I got a scholarship to go study abroad in France for a year so I left home and that's where I really had that experience where I felt I finally belong <laughs> um, started getting invited to a lot of parties I also discovered bulimia that year so I lost weight I got more attention and I started smoking cigarettes as a weight loss tactic but it also went hand in hand with the binge drinking culture mm -hmm. and in France it wasn't as stigmatized at the you know everyone smoked so right. it just was a thing right so so I thought well this this will carry on this will just be a France thing the smoking and the binge drinking and and once I get back to Canada, because by that point I was in third year of university, I was studying psychology, I said, you know, I'm going to be serious and, you know, this. But I was legal, I was 19, which is the legal drinking agent when I got home and started going to bars, but also worked really hard. So it was really a work hard, play hard philosophy. And I excelled. I did an honors thesis. I um, got a new boyfriend because the, the serious boyfriend I only I broke up with him about two weeks after I got to France. I thought I'm gonna, you know, chop around and see what this is all about. And I really felt free for the first time. And I chased that feeling for 15 years of active alcoholism. I just wanted that feeling because drinking was actually good then. Like drinking provided me with self-esteem. It provided me made me feel like I could socialize better. I didn't. I just felt more popular, like it had a lot of benefits and I didn't have horrible hangovers by that point. But I did know like there were some cracks. I knew that I drank differently. I was a guzzler. I was, I would want to go longer than my friends. Like when they would go yeah. home, I would often go home and drink more by myself, like after the bars closed and then feel horrible the next day and think like, why did I need to drink those three extra beers? Like I should have just yeah. gone to bed, you know? So yeah, I did that too. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, and I was like, why do I, why do I have to do this? Why am I going home and drinking more? Like it made no sense to me. <laughs> and then the binging too, like the food. I don't know if that was your part of your story as well, but 
like I would, I would binge on food because I had reduced inhibitions and then it would be the double shame and guilt the next morning. Mm. Yeah. So I finished my degree and then I ended up moving to Ottawa with another boyfriend and was trying to get a job with the government or something. And all I could get was, you know, I was working at coffee shops. I was working at the Y. I was cobbling stuff, you know, just enough to make ends meet. And, and I just didn't know where I was really going. I, with my psych degree, I couldn't really get a job with that unless I went to grad school. So I left again, Canada, and I went back to France. I got a teaching contract for a year. And I started teaching. But before I... Before I went back to France, I had met someone in Ottawa who um, moved to Europe for work and we had started dating online and we had never dated in person, um, but we had met through one of my jobs and he was a customer and then we just kind of hit it off. And anyway, I ended up going there to visit him two weeks before my contract started and he was nothing, you know, that I thought he was going to be. And I mentioned this because... And I think trauma is such a an important component of understanding my story and why I became an alcoholic and or what really set it off or what solidified it. And I think that year I went to visit him and he was extremely abusive. Um, and I got I, I I didn't tell anyone I went I went and then I managed to get out of there. But. I didn't deal with that trauma and I started drinking more and more and more at that point and then ended up leaving abruptly because of the abusive situation with no money um, because I cobbled together these three customer service jobs just to get enough for a one-way ticket and I left early and I had to figure out how I was going to get back to France and I started drinking more and more but I I made my way back to France or to France to start my contract and I arrived early and luckily they were able to get me my room it was a boarding school so I was able and one of the first things I did was go to the liquor store or the grocery store and buy bottle of red wine and that night I was so exhausted but I just guzzled it down and that was kind of how I rolled um, for the next year and got a new boyfriend right away you know numbed through that but never addressed the the trauma of that and had flashbacks afterwards and stuff Um, and dissociation which started up about a year afterwards like once I got back to Canada but the silver lining of this story is I actually met my husband in France that year and we've been together now for 14 years. So, yeah. So, you know, I, I do think everything happens for a reason. And so I taught English for a year there and then I got accepted to McGill in Montreal to start a a second bachelor degree in social work. I thought I'm going to do social work. I've always felt connected to marginalized folks and, was doing some volunteer work with the YMCA when I lived in Ottawa and I really liked that work. And I ended up moving uh, to Montreal, which is a big city. And my husband, Elve came with me. We had only been dating for four months, but he, he came along and we just thought, Oh, we'll see what happens. You know, I was 24, I guess at the time and he was 25. So we were little babes in the woods and we, 
went, yeah, we, we moved in together and I started attending McGill and working hard, playing hard, doing well again, then did a master's and my drinking just progressively escalated. And I had no intention of stopping drinking. Like it wasn't even, it wasn't part, it wasn't on my radar. I, I was just thinking actually the first time I think I had heard about AA I was 20, it was when I was in Ottawa before I moved to France the second time. And I was working at the YMCA and there were people who would come in, like who were living in halfway houses, right? And one of them, I sort of started dating and he was around my age. He was like 20, and he was younger than I was. He was 21, I think. And he was living in a halfway house, (laughs) you know, I didn't exactly have, you know, my standards at this point. I just, I always had a boyfriend that was also part of my filling the, filling the hole in the soul. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, and I was a, a chronic fixer upper, like I'm, I'm, this person has potential. I'm going to, but yeah, he was living in a halfway house. He was in, um, because of some drug issues. And he told me, he said, my sponsor said I wasn't allowed to date anybody, but I'm going to anyway. And I thought like, what's that? A sponsor? What are you talking about? And so that's kind of where the seed was planted, I think. Okay. Okay. But I drank in front of him and, you know, I didn't think anything of it. And that was about, that was 10 years before I got sober. So there were lots of, there was lots of more research, but I remember being, starting to feel a little bit self-conscious around that time as well. And I was just, um, I call it like the sneaky gene. I had this, I think a lot of people who (laughs) are addicts and alcoholics have the sneaky gene. And I was a master of disguise. Like I live, I've always lived this double life. And even with my cigarette smoking, like I would hide in alleyways and, you know, (laughs) this kind of thing so that people didn't know even though people wouldn't care but it was my own shame I think so I just thought that was interesting because I remembered when I would yeah try and hide and also with the drinking right like it would be I'd go to a work thing and then oh I'm going to do my real drinking when I get home yeah yeah Yeah. so so yeah I, I ended up uh you see, my husband and I got married. We were together five years. So we got married in 2011. And that year was a pretty intense year. Like we got married. We had a wedding in Canada. We had a wedding in France. I was working three jobs trying to pay off school and, and everything because um, I was starting my PhD that year as well. Um, I did get a, a very big scholarship, which I mention because I think it, it played into the, the narrative that it's not that bad. It's not that bad, you know? Mm -hmm. And like, I had just won a a highly competitive, like six figure scholarship um, to that paid my, my way for my PhD. So I, you know, it was like, it can't be that bad. Like you're doing this or, and often people would say to me, Oh, well, you know, you deserve a drink. Like you work so hard, Victoria, that kind of thing. Yeah. 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 So, so we ended up buying um, a condo as well that year and, and did like a, it was a fixer upper. It was built in 1900. So we had to do a lot of work on it. And then I, 
it was Labor Day weekend, so right before the semester started. And I was going to go out for like a last hurrah with my friend, a girlfriend, and I was going to sleep over at her house. So we went out to this Ethiopian restaurant for dinner, and then we were going to go for some drinks and then go back to her place. But anyway, we ended up going to this club, and she met a guy, and then um, I had just, I had gotten married that year, and I remember she was off with someone, and I was showing this guy some pictures on my phone of my wedding and whatnot, and then I don't remember anything. And it was like, so... I was roofied essentially and I woke up the next day and I didn't know what happened. Um, It was extremely traumatic and I had to start school that week. And here I am like, I just stuff it down. Like, I don't know. Do I report it? Like, you know, all of these things. So within two weeks I started to get some strange symptoms. So I had never had yeast infections before, and I started getting yeast infections. I was urinating all the time. I was thirsty all the time. I was starving all the time. And I started to lose weight really quickly, even though I was eating, like, poutines and cookies. And, you know, I was talking to my mom, and I was like, I think I found the holy grail. You know, I don't know what's going on. I'm eating everything I want, and my pants are falling off. And um, she said, are you eating more sugar than usual? I said, well, yeah, I'm eating everything in sight. I'm starving. And I was tired. And anyway, Mm -hmm. it turns out that I had type 1 diabetes. I was hospitalized um, December 16th, uh, 2011, two years before I got sober. So for those of, uh, for the listeners who aren't aware of or don't know much about type 1 diabetes because I certainly didn't before I was diagnosed you know that there's type 1 diabetes and type 2 diabetes type 1 is also known as juvenile diabetes or used to be known as that it's an autoimmune condition and it affects about 10% of people who have diabetes and so in contrast to type 2 diabetes which is more of a gradual onset type 1 happens very suddenly and we don't quite know there's different theories but one of them is an emotional or a physical trauma so you have a genetic predisposition and then the trauma pulls the trigger and it just didn't you know it was so coincidental that I experienced this this major shock trauma and then two weeks later I started getting symptoms so and six before my blood work had been completely clear in terms of my um my blood sugars. So anyway, I went from one day to the next needing to inject, you know, up to upwards of six times a day insulin injections to keep my body alive. And every time I injected it, I was reminded of this sexual assault. And instead of, I I didn't realize, like I'm saying this now, but at the time I just, I didn't, I was still in shock. I think there was just so much that I went to my my first drug of choice, the more socially acceptable drug of choice, which is work. And I had unli- an unlimited supply of work as a PhD student. So I buried myself in my work and also my drinking escalated. And I ended up finishing my PhD in three and a half years and the average time is five years. Um, up to seven years and what I should mention as well is that when I was at in the hospital 
when I was diagnosed, one of the first questions I had was, am I going to be able to drink? Right. Right? Naturally, (laughs) naturally. And, and the doctor who was trying to comfort me, she's a lovely endocrinologist said, yes, Victoria, you're going to be able to drink as long as you follow the guidelines like everyone else which for women is seven to nine drinks a week no more than two drinks on any night and I thought oh my goodness like seven to nine drinks that's like a you know a Tuesday kind of thing (laughs) so I I thought well here I go like this diagnosis is a godsend because I'm finally going to be able to stop drinking or to quote unquote control my drinking because I can't drink I have a good excuse now, you know, I'm going to die if I, you know, it's very dangerous to mix insulin with uh, alcohol. You can go into a diabetic coma, even if you don't have diabetes, if you drink too much because your uh, blood sugar goes low. So I thought, okay, I've got to, you know, this is great. And then we had our honeymoon actually scheduled for that. Christmas so this was December 16th so within it was I think eight days we were supposed to leave for Cuba because we didn't get to go the year before because my husband ended up getting the stomach flu so we postponed our honeymoon for a year and we were going to an (laughs) all-inclusive and I thought how am I going to manage this I don't want to cancel for a second time but I'm newly diabetic I'm just getting a hang of how to do these insulin shots and check my sugars 20 times a day and you know, and I thought, well, I really want to go on this vacation. So I actually got the green light. And I, you know, was comforted by the fact that we're going to Cuba, which has a good healthcare system. And I managed to drink, quote unquote, normally on that vacation. And nothing bad happened. So that kind of fueled that belief that, oh, I'm, it's not that bad. Right? It's not that bad. And um, mm-hmm. I I actually forgot to mention that, you know, I mentioned some of the cracks that appeared, but I had my first ultimatum to stop drinking at 19 from a boyfriend. And the reason I got that is because I was a blackout drinker and I didn't blackout every time, but I did often and I did crazy, insane things when I was drinking. I was total Jekyll and Hyde drinker and I would take off to keep the party going and get in cabs with strangers and not tell people where I was going and that kind of thing. And it was really scary for my friends and for boyfriends. So, you know, that there definitely were signs along the way, but I just masked it because my life on the outside looked okay. And I looked okay. Mm -hmm. And I often use that metaphor, the, you know, the dressed up garbage can is what I feel I represented because even today I get the, you don't, what you, you don't look like an alcoholic, you know? And, right. Right. And people don't, don't think that there are high functioning alcoholics out there. Um, The thing was, as soon as I put alcohol in my body, I, I had no idea how the night was going to end. I had no control over it. I was really powerless over it. And the proof in that was heightened when I became diabetic and could not stop. And it got so much worse. And I started 
the blackouts, like my physiology just changed and the blackouts got so much worse. And I started actually replacing my insulin with, with hard liquor or wine because it could lower my, so like the insanity of it, you know, and, and I dealt with the shaming and this and went from ER nurses and don't, you know, you're diabetic and this is, you're going to kill yourself. And like, yeah, we know (laughs) it it just, it, it baffled me how my life on the appeared was, was mani- I was managing on in many ways, but I was completely out of control when it came to drinking. And it was, it was such an obsession for me. Like I, mm-hmm. I'm just looking at my bookshelf now. I have so many addiction memoirs and I started collecting these probably about 10 years before I got sober because I just wanted to know what was wrong with me. Like I knew um, and then I would compare myself to these people, like Carolyn Knapp was one of my favorite ones, who was Boston, yeah. you know, drinking a love story. Everyone seems, I really, like, I would read that yeah. after I had a really bad night, and for some reason I would go and read read her book and think, oh, she did it, maybe I should do it. But then that would kind of pass after a few days when I started to feel better physically, and then I would yeah. go back to the same vicious cycle over and over and over and over again. And finally, so I was diabetic for two years. I was doing really well in school. I was teaching university and I was my 32nd birthday, which is November 22nd. And my sobriety date is November 23rd. So I had taught a class in the morning and then my routine was to teach the class and it was a really hard class. Like they were, they were brutal. And I, I was barely keeping it together. Remember I was started using benzos as well to sleep because I just, my anxiety was crazy. And I would teach the class from eight till noon, walk home, stop at the liquor store, buy four tall cans of hard beer, um, so I did that on my birthday, bought a dress, did some pre-drinking, and then the plan was to go out with some girlfriends for drinks and then my husband for dinner. Uh, so I did this and had the plan. And this was the other thing. My husband is the most patient man in the universe, and we tried everything for me to drink in safety. So we tried, you know, him only drinking with him there, only drinking... Uh, at home only drinking when we went out you know him cutting me off but then we'd end up in a fight because I would respect what the boundary was you Mm -hmm. know (laughs) so so it was my birthday and and we went out I had the drinks with the girls and then ended up going out to the dinner and then of course instead of just going you know 9 30 at night going home it's like oh well I've got a buzz on let's keep going just to, just to, just have a drink. So we went back to the bar where my girlfriends were, kept drinking, and then all bets were off after that. Even though said okay, no hard stuff tonight, just beer and wine, and then shots going. And basically, I had the you know the plan to be put in the cab and everything, and and I ended up uh, after a sixteen hour blackout um, in a different neighborhood. Don't know how I got there. Uh, with some uh, cracked ribs, don't know how that happened, 
no underwear on, don't know how that happened, you know. Um, And it's just, I was in the hospital after this, and my husband's like, I can't, I can't do this anymore. And I couldn't do it anymore either. I just, I, I know something happened in that moment. I remember just being so desperate. And 14 months before this final bottom, I actually went to my first AA meeting. And it was after a crazy night where I, you know, often that would happen. I'd go to either Carolyn Knapp or start researching AA meetings or do the AA test. Am I an alcoholic? (laughs) You know, Mm -hmm. know, just so desperate. I'd actually tried also about a year before I got sober to get into a rehab. But when they did the intake, they told me I was too high functioning because I was in school full time and I worked. And I was like, I'm almost died <laughs> like many times oh my god and they said well no like you have to not be working and you basically have to be suicidal and exaggerate your symptoms and so what? oh yeah it, like it was it's really hard to get into unless you have a shitload of money and I was a student so I didn't have money to go to a private rehab I was going through the public system and I and they wouldn't take me so they, they recommended to me doing the the smart recovery program which is basically teaching you what moderation is and I was an expert in that I had all the knowledge about what moderation was but I I just I couldn't I couldn't do it I tried harm reduction for 15 years controlled drinking and nothing no amount of planning no amount of anything would keep me away from getting more alcohol as soon as I had that in my system so abstinence was really the only thing that that would work and but I but it wasn't on my radar I just thought I needed to figure out how to drink normally <laughs> you know I, I it was insane but so after this last drunk when I I think it is a spiritual awakening where I knew I was going to die and I didn't have another drunk in me, but I didn't want to go to AA because I, as I mentioned, 14 months before, I went to my first AA meeting and I went to the French side because in Montreal we had French and English sides. And I was so ashamed being in social work. I didn't want anyone to see me, God forbid. Um, mm. So I went to the French meeting and it was all old Quebecois men sitting in a circle it was a nooner so and I went in there and felt super self-conscious and they made me read something and I thought I don't want any part of this I obviously wasn't desperate enough at that point I don't know I had to do more research so I tried that you had that image you held that image then of AA that was my image yeah and it was not what I wanted (laughs) (laughs) But I was so full of, again, that contempt prior to investigation. I was so judgy. And so this time, after my final, I I said, I'm going to go to different therapists. So I went to three therapists simultaneously. One of them was abstinence-based. And she 
looked at me and she said, Victoria, some people I would recommend moderation, but for you, absolutely abstinence. And she had worked at homeless shelters and everything. And I said, well, isn't that just like 12 step? And she's like, well, I said, I tried a meeting and she said, well, try a speaker meeting. And I thought, okay, I didn't even know there were speaker meetings. So I went to a speaker meeting and the guy speaking that nooner, uh, he said something that really stood out to me. And I don't know, I went and thanked him afterwards. And he said, the moment I stopped asking why I'm an alcoholic, I could start moving forward and heal. And I thought that was my pursuit. The insanity was why, why, why? And Wait, can you just say, I'm going to pull up Brene Brown here because this is what she does on her podcast, on, <laughs> which I love. But just can you repeat that? I love that too. About Brene. Yeah. So yeah. <laughs> he said, the moment I stopped asking why I'm an alcoholic was the moment I could move forward and start to heal. And it just was, you know, and... It's not to say I wasn't able to start looking at that afterwards, but it's when I started, when I finally understood that alcohol was the solution and not the problem, (laughs) right? Which it says very clearly, which is actually quite trauma-informed and is in the AA big book. It says alcohol was but a symptom we had to get down to causes and conditions. That's actually quite before it's time if you look at it through using a trauma lens it's like that was there was the root issue was trauma and bill wilson was actually uh had a history of childhood trauma as well so it's just really interesting that you know the steps are you know i don't i i i promote or, you know, it worked for me, basically, but I, there's lots of different ways to get sober is kind of, and I know you, that's something that you say as well on this podcast, right? Like, there's not a single way to get Absolutely. sober. And this is just yeah. about what works for people. But I honestly tried every type of therapy you could imagine. And um, I am a social worker by training. I you know, did all the schooling up the, you know, up the wazoo, 12 years of university, and I couldn't get sober. (laughs) And it's when I understood that, yeah, it's, it was, it was the symptom of this disease and this trauma that I was able, finally able to start to heal. And also that community, the connection was something that I had craved and wanting to feel like I belonged because I never felt that way. I always felt very different than my family, than people I was growing up with, etc. So I went to the speaker meeting and then I ended up finding a ladies meeting. Um, and it was there that my recovery really started to begin because I was scooped up by these ladies. They took me, you know, they said, you're coming to lunch with us. (laughs) And, and it was, yeah. And I never had that. I never had that. I had my drinking friends and I do have wonderful friendships from childhood um, who are still my friends today, but just to be able to connect with people 
who got it, like what I had been suffering from for 15 years and not understanding and then hearing these shares and people were just like me. It was amazing. It was really, really amazing. But I will say that I did not have a pink cloud for the first couple years. It was really hard. I had to grieve the drinking and I still hadn't dealt with the trauma. And that was my solution for so many years. So it, yeah, it was really painful not to be drinking, not to have my friend anymore, even though this friend was killing me, it was still all I really knew that worked. So Mm -hmm. it probably after around two years, I moved from I can't drink to I don't want to drink. And that was a result of building my spiritual life, I'd say. That's been a big part of my recovery as well. Um, And I just did started doing everything that people told me to do because I had that gift of desperation. So I got a sponsor. I started doing service. I got a home group. I made coffee. And after it took me about a year to do the steps. And then a year after I finished or a year into the program, into my sobriety, I started sponsoring women. And that was very transformative for me as well. And I was thinking actually about um, David Kessler's work around grief and how he recently wrote a book about the third step, or sorry, the sixth step of grief, building on Kubler-Ross's five stages, right? Yes, I've heard of that. And the meaning making. And I thought, this is why sharing, and even these kind of platforms, I think sharing our stories and helping others like through sponsoring or in meetings or whatever it is helps make sense of all the pain and does right. It makes it meaningful because we, the fifth stage of grief is acceptance and acceptance is, is good, but it's almost like not enough to really transform, you know, and I felt that for me that mm-hmm. I wasn't able to kind of be a grateful alcoholic until I started sharing about it. And that's been a process as well, because as a professional, um, especially in academia, there's this expectation that you show no weakness. It's extremely competitive dog eats dog kind of world. And even though the paradox is that in I'm in social work and, you know, we're working with the most marginalized of the marginalized, there's still this expectation, you know, don't show any vulnerability because you know, you have to keep your competitive edge, especially in academia, because it's hard to get positions. So I had met some professionals who were in recovery in Montreal and were very tight-lipped about being in recovery. And they said, and they advised me to do the same. They said, don't tell anybody. You don't want to be pegged as that person, the loose cannon, the et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And I struggled with that because it wasn't like I needed to yell it off the top of rooftop, but it wasn't like I was working in a bank and I work, my research is actually in homelessness and addiction. (laughs) So, so I was bumping up against it every single day. 
And I felt like in recovery, I was still living a half life because I wasn't able to immerse myself into the work as much as I needed to because I felt I was too ashamed and I didn't want to compromise anything. I didn't want to risk losing my job. I didn't want to risk whatever. I was just so, so tied up in fear because of the stigma. And it's still very real. Yeah. It is. Uh, even though there, you know, there's so many stigma fighting campaigns and, and everything. And basically when I got my job out here in Calgary, I was advised by a senior faculty member to not say anything until I was in, um, until I had my tenure, which is essentially five years into your professorship, you get a permanent position, but until then you're kind of climbing the ranks, still proving yourself. So, you know, and it just became very unmanageable because I was teaching a class on use of self and the importance of use of self in social work practice, right? And, and how I remembered how desperately I wanted to work with a social worker or a clinician who had, a, who had an experience with addiction because the people who I had consulted with just didn't get addiction, you know? Like, it just, until you live it. And, yeah. and then I just thought, look, I'm doing a disservice to my students by not kind of just owning up to who I am and not being ashamed of it. And I'm teaching them, you know, that we've got to combat stigma. That's part of our social work value. And yet here I am reinforcing the stigma by being so ashamed of basically, you know, just having a, a, it's a part, it's an identity. It's not my whole identity. And I was, you know, it's like someone being a cancer survivor who imagine all cancer survivors were ashamed of telling their stories. <laughs> right. Like it just doesn't make sense. So, right. And it is because there's that dominant discourse that it's a choice and it's a moral failure. And it's still, people still think that, and there's still these narrow ideas about what an, a quote unquote addict or alcoholic looks like. And basically I consulted with my Dean and I said, look, if this affects my career, like, so be it, but I can't, you know, I've got to, I've got to just be real here if I'm teaching social work and working in, in the homelessness community, right? Because some people don't have the choice of whether to disclose or not, people who are on the streets, but that's the privilege of having this invisible, of, you know, being a white cisgender woman, like, I can conceal that, but I think with great privilege comes great responsibility as well. So I said, look, this is, this is where I'm at. And I don't want you to be the last one to find out, but if it comes up as a teaching moment, teachable moment, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to roll with it. And he said, Victoria, there is absolutely nothing to worry about. I support you fully. And, you know, it just, it really took this burden off my shoulders. Um, that's wonderful. How far along were you in your I was five years in. Not too long ago. Yeah, this so is actually quite ago. recent. Yeah, I lived a double life in recovery. Like people, I didn't tell anybody. 
I was, I didn't tell my PhD supervisors there was champagne popped at my thesis defense <laughs> and, and my supervisor handed me a glass and said, and I said, no, thank you. And he's like, come on, it's your thesis defense. It's not like you're an alcoholic, <laughs> literally in front of everyone. I oh my died. God. Oh. It's just so <clears throat> unbelievable. It, that is just unbelievable. You know, I have to say, you know, that your story is incredible and I am so grateful to you for um, uh, sharing your story with such vulnerability and you're pretty much a part, in my opinion, a part of this, um, you know, this, this revolution, I think of, of ending the stigma of, you know, like the, it's it, of the, what you said, it's, it's not a choice and a moral failure issue. It's a disease and there needs to be more compassion about it with everyone in a, any kind of profession. And, you know, I, it makes me think about like, how is Brene Brown? Like she's in recovery. Like I, does the, the set that does, do the people in your profession like talk down about her because she is <laughs> no what which is it, it's just interesting because it 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 doesn't make sense almost how people will say one thing but then when it comes down to actually doing it yourself it's almost basically what the person said to me who was you know I had a few people say, you know, don't say anything. Um, but the way that I think a parallel is being part of the LGBTQ community in the 90s, right? And people didn't come out of the closet at work unless you were a hairdresser or whatever. And, like, look how far we've come with that. But it took really brave people to be out in the workplace, so I have made it my mission to fight stigma and I have changed the course of my research slightly. I had been working in addiction and homelessness, but now I'm really, I got a research grant to look at addiction stigma on university campuses because there's such a culture of alcoholism and, and we, and there's also a lot of, um, suicide, mental illness, and we know addiction, but yep. no one's really talking yep. about it. And there's a lot of faculty who are going out, out on stress leave. And addiction, you know, affects one in 10 people. A university of 30,000 people, that's a lot of people struggling with addiction, and no one's talking about it. So the work I'm doing, I don't know if you've heard of um, recovery-friendly workplaces. Yeah, so it was actually an initiative no, started not. in New Hampshire. Um, and just like LGBT, LGBTQ-friendly has the rainbow flag, what they start to do, they have an actual, yeah. um, like a symbol. So people can, once they're approved as a recovery-friendly workplace and there's certain things like, that they have to implement, then they can be certified and then they, you know, have a sticker on, on their front window. And it means that if someone is struggling with addiction and they come forward asking for help, that they're not, their job is not going to be put on the line. 
Yeah, it's amazing. Oh gosh, so I have to find somebody <laughs> up there to interview. <laughs> That's incredible. Thank yeah. you so much for sharing that. Yeah, and so much hope. I yeah. think it makes so much Go sense because yeah. I was so terrified of coming forward with this struggle, thinking I might lose my job. You know, and I'm in social work. So how do you think a lot of people, especially people in, you know, who work in medicine, there's doctors, there's, you know, they can lose their license. There's all sorts of things. Like, would we do that for people who are, who are struggling with cancer? You know, it's. I know. It really, it's such a misunderstood, like, you know, I think, I think understanding of, of sobriety and recovery is changing, but I do think there's, we have a long way to go. And that's why, that's why I started my podcast. One of the, one of the reasons why I started my podcast and um, to help end the stigma of that. It's not a choice and a moral failure that you and I experienced, you know, this is something much more like this is a disease, you know, and it's something where we have an, we have an allergy. We, that, that second we put it for me, the second I put, (laughs) <laughs> Pinot Grigio was my drug of choice. It's the second I put it in my mouth, I wanted, I was just off to the races. I could not stop. I had no off button and the obsession of it. And it's like, it's just mind boggling. Um, I, I could not understand why I couldn't stop. And it was, it, it was, I felt cursed. And I share about this in my first episode. It's like, I felt cursed. Like, why can't I just drink normally? And then having such shame, like I couldn't talk about it with anyone because I had the same, the same thing, like everything looked up. Okay. From the outside, you know? And, and so I'm like, I better just keep up this appearance, you know, that everything's only okay, but I was struggling. And then to have like that, you know, that, that place to go where you can connect with others who feel the same way. It's like, Oh, what a relief. You know, you've, you've, it's like, I found my family, you know, like the, like that, that family that I've had forever. I've just been looking for, you know, my whole life. And, um, and I just, I applaud you and I'm just so grateful to you for coming on my pot, my humble podcast, my very small, you know, um, very green podcast, but a podcast to really help to educate and to build awareness and to celebrate the hope and recovery, because you're obviously succeeding in recovery one day at a time. And congratulations on, you know, seven years, uh, your upcoming seven years. That's incredible. That's a lot of time. I mean, that's so seven years sober time. <laughs> like I know when I was at seven years, I'm like, it feels it, like well, it, yeah, because you couldn't <laughs> even string two days together. Like, remember how hard that was? And you'd see people with two years or one year and you think, oh my God, how do they do that? Yep. Yeah. And the surrendering and the, and the, and the, the gift of desperation, I think is so key um, in getting to a place of, okay, there's a chance, there's a chance I'm going to recover. Yeah. Can I just share one quick thing that I'm excited about? (laughs) Because I, of course, I, I posted my Instagram account today about this webinar I attended yesterday and it's based on the webinar was based around the movie cracked up. Have you seen cracked up? 
No, but I'm actually, I've had your Instagram okay. up this entire interview. Um, and I've, I've been looking at it. I looked at Ken, so I'm glad. Okay, yeah. So Cracked Up is a documentary, <laughs> and it's based on the life of Daryl Hammond, who is a comedian. He was on Saturday Night Live for years. And he also struggled with addiction and mental illness. And he couldn't seem to, you know, get recovery. And it wasn't until he found a doctor who was trauma-informed that he realized it was this underlying trauma, this childhood trauma, specifically, that was the cause or the root um, of his addiction and, and mental illness. And what he actually calls it in the film, they refer to it as mental injury, which I think is interesting because interesting. basically what happens is when we're, uh, when we experience trauma, especially as children, um, our brain chemistry changes. And when we're kind of more hardwired to feel unsafe and, you know, and that's why when things happen today and we have a, Kind of intense reaction to it, which I know happens to me, and I was diagnosed with PTSD, but it's often because of the way, like the first seven years of our life is when the, the emotions, um, when, we, when we develop emotional regulation. And if we don't do that, then we're kind of stuck in this really dysregulated nervous system and emotional dysregulation. And I think that it makes so much sense for people with, with addiction, because we know that that emotional sobriety is such a big part of it, right? And long-term recovery. And so, yep. anyway, it's such a brilliant right. documentary. And and it I related to it so much because it was really when I started to get help around the trauma that my eating disorder was lifted like it wasn't just playing a game of whack-a-mole and moving over to another thing, right? It was really about getting that emotional sobriety finally right. in my body and feeling safe in my body, which I had never felt. And a lot of people who are sexual assault survivors in particular dissociate from their bodies. And he gets into that about just how, how affected, you know, trauma is. And it's, it's not about being a victim either and thinking, oh, well, this happened to me. It's really about just understanding and I really, an awareness. Because for me, that is the first step to healing is just being aware of knowing that it's, I'm just not crazy, you know, <laughs> that there's a reason why my brain yeah. just isn't, right. just acts differently. One of the books that transformed my life, and I mention it because the author is featured in Cracked Up. His name's Bessel van der Kolk, and he wrote the book, The Body Keeps the Score. And he describes trauma as the quote-unquote holes in the soul that result from not having been wanted, not having been seen, and not having been allowed to speak the truth. So I think that that is so, it just captures that trauma, we think of big T trauma, of war vets, of all, you know, this overt trauma but trauma can also be covert and stigma feeds trauma because you mm -hmm. don't feel seen ever and I think that's what recovery and that's what we're trying to do and that's what I love about your podcast is that you are raising awareness you're 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 allowing people to be seen and I want to thank you for allowing me to feel seen today mm -hmm.
has been fantastic. And I hope you get, I hope you get picked up to be on more podcasts because that Mm. seems to be what everyone's doing right now. Well, that's a wrap on this episode with Dr. Victoria Burns from Instagram account B-E-T-E-S-A-N-D-B-I-T-E-S. Look for her Instagram account in the show notes. I hope what you heard today inspires you to look for and recognize the gifts of sobriety and the hope in recovery. A sober life is possible if you truly want it.